In Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Did you hear about the millionaire groom? He told the pastor officiating his wedding that he'd be paid based on the brevity of the ceremony. If the pastor got long-winded, he would receive a token $5 for his services. Whereas if the pastor didn't waste any words and got right to the point, he'd get a generous gift of $5,000. Well, on the wedding day, when the couple got to the altar, the pastor, he looked at the groom, and then he nodded over toward the bride. He said, take her? The man said, I do. Then he turned to the bride and sort of motioned back at the groom, take him? She also said, I do. The pastor then pronounced, took. <laughs> and that was it. The whole wedding ceremony was accomplished in just five words. Indeed, brevity can be beautiful. And that is certainly true of the Ten Commandments. In just ten statements, God covers every facet of social and spiritual relations. I mean, the scope of the Ten Commandments is universal. It applies to all men, in all places, at all times, in all cultures, under all circumstances. One author writes, there's something self-contained and final about these commandments. One night at dinner, a father pulled out his Bible and he was sharing a devotion with his family. The passage he read included the Ten Commandments, but he knew he went a little long. You know, he could read it on their faces. He knew he'd lost the attention of his preschoolers. 
And so in an effort to pull them back in, he asked his five-year-old, he said, Now, how many commandments did God give Moses? Little Seth sort of shook his head and he said, Too many? <laughs> hey, man-made religion has too many commandments. It always majors on the minors and minors on the majors. It makes a big deal out of minutiae and amplifies the trivial. It makes obedience to God complicated and cumbersome. But that's not God's desire. God boils down our priorities to just ten. And it's obvious that only God could have authored these ten commandments. Consider the chance of a man or a group of men coming up with a standard so simple yet so sweeping. The Ten Commandments contain just 297 words. A recent federal government directive to regulate the price of cabbage contained 26,911 words. Man's tendency is to complicate whatever he puts his hands to. I've heard it said, we have created 35 million laws trying to enforce Ten Commandments. When God composed these Ten Commandments, He made them simple, to the point, easy to understand, applicable to all, and yet comprehensive in their coverage. You know, the Jews refer to these Ten Injunctions as the Ten Words, or the Ten Sayings. Sometimes they're called the Decalogue. When God camped, in, when Israel camped in Sinai, the mountain quaked under God's presence. He descended in the smoke and in the fire. And he provided his people ten precepts or mandates. God redeemed his people from Egyptian slavery. And now he will teach them how to live holy and happy lives in ten bursts of both brilliance and brevity, God addresses ten essential topics. Faith, worship, reverence, time, authority, life, purity, property, speech, and contentment. Master God's ten sayings and the concepts behind them, and you'll be successful in every area of your life. You know, it's interesting God wrote these Ten Commandments with His own finger. That's what the Bible tells us. Exodus 31 verse 18 says, When God had made an end of speaking with Him on Mount Sinai, He gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. The Ten Commandments were written on two plates of stone and thus divided into two categories. The first tablet, which consists of the first five commandments, deal with man's relationship with God. Whereas the second tablet, which contains the second five, deal with man's relationship with his fellow man. Which reminds me of the day when Moses, he went to God and he asked, he said, Lord, we're a sick people. We need some serious help. What can you prescribe us? God, the great physician, he handed Moses the Ten Commandments and he told him, take these two tablets and if you're not better soon, come back and see me. Hey, the reason so many people have to take pills is because they've never taken to heart these tablets. Go to Washington, D.C. today and you'll find the Ten Commandments on most of our national monuments. 
They're engraved in the floor of the National Archives. A bronze statue of Moses stands in the Library of Congress. The face of Moses is directly across from the Speaker's chair in the House of Representatives. Moses and the Ten Commandments adorn the facade of the Supreme Court building itself. They're even carved into the doors that open up into the court. And yet posting these commandments is not enough. We need to obey them. Over the next two weeks, that's what I want to encourage us to do. I want us to take both of our tablets. Well, read with me the first commandment, verses 2 and 3. God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. The Hebrews had just departed a land of idols, a land teeming with idols. The ancient Egyptians had deified nature and animals and even the Pharaoh. They recognized 20,000 different gods. And while in Egypt, even the Hebrews had developed an attraction to these false gods. In Joshua 24 verse 14, the next generation is commanded to put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt serve the Lord. Realize the ten plagues were God's assault on Egyptian idolatry. You see, turning the Nile to blood, the proliferation of frogs, even the death of the firstborn, even the diseased cattle, were not plagues chosen at random. No, each of these plagues targeted a different Egyptian deity. You see, the Nile was considered sacred by the Egyptians. The goddess Hecht was personified as a frog. Pharaoh and his firstborn heir were viewed as divine. Believe it or not, the Egyptians even worshipped bulls and heifers. Holy cow, what a mistake that was. Couldn't wait for that. Hey, the ten plagues that Charleston Heston brought upon Yul Brynner and the Egyptians were designed to show that the true God was supreme over all of these other idols. In other words, God dared the forces of evil to a showdown, and then he blew them out of the water. The Israelis who left Egypt, they had a fresh start with a vivid demonstration of the reality and the supremacy of the true God fresh on their minds. And that's why God immediately tells them to never again worship anything other than Him. Now fast forward 3,500 years to modern times. After we've walked on the moon and invented speed of light communications and developed medicinal marvels that have now made certain diseases obsolete, I mean, today, when you hear Moses had two tablets, you think, iPads. <laughs> After such technological advancement, you'd think the human race would have outgrown its taste for idolatry, but not so. No, all over the world today, idols still abound. In India today, Hindus worship 300 million gods and goddesses. In Sri Lanka, 100,000 Buddhists every year flock to pay homage to Buddha's tooth. Muslims worship Allah, the moon god of the ancient Arabs, Arabia. 
New Agers, they ascribe divine powers to Mother Earth. Even some disciples of Rome bow to statues of the Virgin Mary. In fact, I read of two ladies in Denver, Colorado, who years ago founded the Church of the Risen Elvis. They're modern idolaters. They made a god out of Elvis Presley. They enshrined a little Elvis doll above an altar, and then they adorned it with candles and flowers. They raise their hands and chant Elvis' name. They've held special services when there's a so-called Elvis sighting. They even pray to the dead singer. And, And all of this for a man who admitted, I ain't nothing but a hound dog. Now, I'm pretty sure that none of you guys are going to run off and join the Church of the Risen Elvis. But there are other, more subtle ways to fall into the snare of idolatry. Billy Graham once said, Whatever you love most, be it sports, pleasure, business, or God, that is your God. Author Wallace made a similar statement. He said, An idol may be defined as any person or thing that has usurped in the heart the place of preeminence that belongs to the Lord. In short, you can make an idol out of anything. A person, a possession, a pleasure, a position, a philosophy. Take, for example, possessions. What some folks call toys. God may view them as idols. I'm sure you've seen the bumper sticker, He who dies with the most toys wins. Well, a man's toys or treasures can be his God. If you want to know if you're in danger of idolatry, just track down how you've been exhausting your resources and your assets. Do you spend more of your time on your toys or on God? Does more of your money go toward your toys or God? Who gets the majority of your thoughts and attention? Your toys or God. We can also make idols out of people. We put people on pedestals, don't we? Athletes and heroes and entertainers. You can worship a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I've even seen parents drop off their little idols right back there at the nursery. I mean, their whole world revolves around the baby. Don't misunderstand, parenting and marriage are both wonderful and good and godly, but our relationship with God should take precedent over every other relationship in our lives. American author Oliver Wendell Holmes put it bluntly, men are idolaters and want something to look at and kiss and hug and throw themselves down before. They always did, they always will. And if you don't make it out of wood, you must make it out of words. A noble cause or philosophy or someone's dream can also become an idol. Even ideals can be idols. Years ago, a preacher named Bud Robinson paid a visit to the Big Apple. He was shown all the glitz and glamour of New York City. But after his trip, he prayed, Lord, I thank you for letting me see all the sights of New York, and I thank you most of all that I didn't see a thing I wanted. God's commandment number one instructs us not to make anything else in our life more important to us than God. The second of God's top ten is in verses 4 through 6. Here God commands us, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. 
You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice the first commandment clarifies the object of our worship, whereas the second commandment instructs us on the observance of our worship. You see, it's not simply enough to just love and serve God. If we're sincere in that devotion, we'll love and worship God in the ways that He wants to be loved and worshipped. The breakthrough in my marital life occurred when I realized that if I really love Kathy, I will love her in the way that she wants and needs to be loved, not just in the way that's convenient for me. This was hammered home to me several weeks after the wedding. I came home one day and my new wife was in a funk. She was upset and obviously at me and I didn't really know what I had done. One night I brought her flowers. The next night I brought her candies. Nothing worked. Finally, I asked her, I said, honey, what's wrong? Tears welled up in her little eyes and, and she sort of whimpered and she said, the yard looks like a jungle. You never mow the grass. You don't care about our home. Now, I've never liked mowing grass. But I have never equated Mowing grass with the state of my marriage. That was sort of the furthest thing from my mind. But I had to learn that what spoke love to my wife wasn't as much roses or candy as a freshly manicured lawn. And rather than argue the point, I went out and mowed the grass and have lived happily ever after. <laughs> Here's the golden rule in relationships. If you love someone, your wife or parents or kids, you'll love them in the way that they need and desire to be loved. This is the idea that lies behind the second commandment. There are ways that God desires to be worshipped, and there are ways that He doesn't want to be worshipped. And if you love Him, you'll please Him. You won't just love Him in ways that are convenient for you. In Exodus 20 verse 4, the Almighty commands us, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Now certain Puritan and Amish groups have interpreted this injunction as a prohibition against all expressions of art and illustration. They say that a painting or a photo or a sculpture is a graven image and thus forbidden by the second commandment. In fact, you could go to Israel today and some Orthodox Jews will frown on you if you try to take their photograph. But, this, but if this is the correct interpretation of the second commandment, then God breaks his own law later in the book of Exodus when he constructs the tabernacle. For there he commands craftsmen to embroider angels into the sacred curtain. In fact, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments were kept in the Ark of the Covenant on which sat two angels made of gold, another example of divine art. I believe there's nothing wrong with a painting or a snapshot or a sculpture or anything visual and tangible just as long as that image 
is not used or relied upon in our worship. God is spirit. According to Jesus in John 4 verse 24, those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The worship of God should always be spiritual, not tangible. You see, God knows that we are fleshly, physical people. We like to grab and touch in order to believe. But that's not how God wants us to relate to him. You remember Thomas said of the risen Christ, he would believe only if he could touch his scars. But when Jesus appeared, he told Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. God wants us to relate to him and worship him by faith, not by touching or tasting or seeing. As one author puts it, God is not an aspect of nature, but a reality greater than the universe. He admonishes us not to drop our eyes down to nature for an easy fix. God wants us to rise up to the next level and train ourselves to relate to him spiritually. Realize, this was the intention behind the golden calf. Remember the story? Rather than represent a false god and violate the first command, it was an attempt to worship God through a graven image, a violation of the second command. But it quickly deteriorated into brazen idolatry. You remember, Moses was on the mountaintop. The people in the camp had grown restless. They wanted something tangible to aid them in their worship. And in Exodus 32, verses 4 and 5, after Aaron had constructed the holy cow, he told the people, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And it's interesting, the Hebrew word translated Lord is the covenant name for God, Yahweh. Now, if Aaron had made a different God, why did he constitute a feast to Yahweh? The calf was intended to represent the one true God who had brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. But notice how quickly that representation deteriorated. You see, this is the reason for the second commandment. God knows we're too base, too rudimentary, too earthbound. The moment we allow a physical image into our worship, the symbol all of a sudden takes over from the substance. The relic becomes a substitute for the reality. Icons quickly turn into idols. Trinkets and beads, supposedly aids in our worship, quickly become the objects of our worship. Reminds me of the brash little boy who was busy drawing. His mom asked him, said, what are you working on? He says, I'm drawing a picture of God. She gently scolded him. She said, son, it's impossible to draw God. No one knows what he looks like. The little boy fired back, they will when I get through with my picture. <laughs> but if we had a picture of God, trust me, it wouldn't take long for us to worship that picture instead of God. Because we're physical people, we're far too easily attracted to the physical. Thus, the second commandment teaches us to aspire higher, to worship God in spirit. You know, it scares me whenever I find a person whose worship of God is dependent on their mood or on a specific environment. I get concerned when I hear someone say, well, I can't worship God unless I'm in a certain style of church building. Or I can't worship God unless there's candles and incense in the room. Or I can't worship God unless I'm outside under a tree, under the blue sky. 
or I can't worship God unless I can wear my blue jeans and sing praise songs. Hey, if we've learned to worship God in spirit, then we can worship God anywhere, anytime, in any situation. And we should be able to walk into this room some Sundays without saying a word or singing a word and still be able to worship God. God is spirit, and He wants to be worshipped in spirit and truth. Thus, a graven image reduces God to the aspect of His character that we're intending to depict. Thus, the way to worship God is not to reduce Him. It's to exalt Him. The first commandment ensures that we worship the right God. The second commandment, that we worship Him rightly. And the third commandment is in verse 7. God speaks to His people then and now, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes His name in vain. In the Bible, names are important. A name often denoted a person's character. Often a name reflected their nature. Reminds me of the Indian chief that grew tired of his name. It was too long. He petitioned the court for a change. The judge asked him, he said, what's your name now? He said, chief screeching train whistle. He said, and to what would you like it to be shortened? The chief sort of folded his hands. He stuck out his chest and he said, toots. From chief screeching train whistle to toots. Now that's a pretty clever alteration. But understand, God hasn't petitioned the court for an alteration to His name. He likes His name as is. The word God, it speaks of His infinite power and His sovereignty over all things. Lord speaks of His supreme and unrivaled authority. Jesus means Jehovah's salvation. What a perfect name for our living Lord. Christos in the Greek or Christ in English is the translation of the Hebrew Messiah, the name for the King of Kings. Use any of these precious names flippantly or disrespectfully, and you not only insult the person of God, you degrade the nature and character of God. Realize there's three ways to take the name of God in vain. Through profanity, through frivolity, and through hypocrisy. Profanity is when you couple the Lord's name with an unflattering expletive, or you use it as an expletive itself. And it blows my mind that this is even a problem. I mean, why do people hit their finger with a hammer and then shout with disgust the wonderful, precious name of Jesus? I mean, how did that association get started? The name of Jesus should remind us of blessing and peace and healing and forgiveness, not anger. I have no doubt this was originally Satan's idea, and he's been pretty successful in spreading its practice. I know folks who string together the words God and damn without even thinking about what they're saying. And this may be their greatest crime. They disgrace the name and nature of God without thinking about it. I mean, who would want to damn his fellow man in the first place? Do you really wish damnation on anyone? And even if you were so cold and callous as to want a person to go to hell, understand, God would never damn a human being. God loves us and died to save us. 
Romans 8 verse 34 tells us, Who is he who condemns? It's not Jesus. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Frivolity is another way to take the Lord's name in vain. I mean, treating His name as trite, using it in a careless manner is an affront to who God is, referring to God as the man upstairs or the big guy. That belittles the king of creation. I mean, when a person gets caught by surprise and they gasp, Oh my God! Without really crying out to God Himself. That's an example of a frivolous use of God's name. Making God the brunt of a joke is also frivolity. As is using Christian cliches with no thought as to their real meaning. Well, bless God! Or hallelujah! Without really praising God or wanting to bless Him. And then a third way to take the Lord's name in vain is hypocrisy. In Luke 6, verse 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? You see, we take the Lord's name in vain when we talk about Him, how much we love Him, how we want to serve Him, and never take the first step to actually do so. Prayer without practice, creeds without commitment, These are hypocritical uses of God's precious name. You see, there are people who go to church every single Sunday and would never say a vulgar word who will be shocked to realize that they've been taking the Lord's name in vain for years. Famous preacher G. Campbell Morgan, he once wrote, The blasphemies of the church are infinitely worse than the blasphemies of the street. Well, the fourth commandment is in verses 8 through 11. The Lord tells us, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The fourth commandment could well be the most violated of all the ten. It's amazing how far we've fallen in our observance of the Sabbath. I've heard it put, our great-grandfathers called it the Holy Sabbath. Our grandfathers called it the Sabbath. Our fathers called it Sunday. We call it the weekend. When God created the heavens and the earth, He did so in six days. And on the seventh day, He rested. From the very beginning, God knew that man needed a day off. Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. God created, God designed human beings to function best by resting one day in seven. Any archer knows The bow that's always bent ceases to shoot straight. you got to loosen the string on occasion. You've got to relax tension on the bow or else it'll warp, it'll crack. And the same is true with us. If we're constantly under the gun, our perspective will warp, our psyche will crack, even our health will fail. You know, years ago, Pennsylvania miners 
They used mules to haul coal. Many of the animals lived their whole lives underground. They never saw daylight. And before long, they became blind. The miners discovered that the key to saving the animals' eyesight was to bring them above ground one day in seven. The mining mules were brought up from their mines on Sundays. That's why you need to come above ground each Sunday. Or you'll become blind. One day in seven, you need to leave behind the darkness of the office and the daily grind in the oppressive world we live in and get some light. Bask in the light of God's word. Enjoy the fresh air of worship. Rediscover heaven's perspective. You need it. God commands it at least one day in seven. The fourth commandment tells us, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But what does that really mean? How do we keep one day in seven holy? Remember, the word holy means to set apart or to treat as special. The other six days are devoted to work, but one day needs to be special. The Hebrews set aside the Sabbath for two activities, to pray and to play. God intended for the Sabbath to slow us down, to give us a little time to kick back, to remember why we work so hard and stay so busy those other six days of the week. In his book, Confessions of a Former Sabbath Breaker, Eugene Peterson writes, Keeping a Sabbath is simple and easy. We pray and we play. Two things we're pretty good at as children and can always pick up again with a little encouragement and if we can only find the time. But we don't have to find the time. It is given to us. A day a week. A Sabbath. A day to pray and play. God's gift. And that was probably your employer calling you. You just need to text them back. It's the Sabbath. For your sake and for your family's sake, take one day in seven and make it a Sabbath. And the last commandment on tablet one, the fifth commandment is in verse 12. God says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Generally speaking, parents are smarter than their kids, even teenagers. And if kids will respect their parents and listen to their advice, they will live longer and they will live better. God says so right here. Read it and weep, kids. Now, there are some Bible scholars who place this commandment on the second tablet along with the commands that deal with relationships with our fellow man. But I believe it appeared on the first tablet. For your relationship with your parents is in many ways interconnected with your relationship to God. I believe the fifth commandment belongs on this first tablet of the law for a special reason. If you can't obey an authority you can see, namely your parents, then how are you going to obey an authority you can't see? Or God. Respect for one's parents is critical to a child's ability to obey and respect other types of authority in their life. If a child doesn't obey and respect his parents, he probably won't end up obeying and respecting his teacher, or his coach, or the police, or his boss, or even God. 
You learn to honor God by honoring your parents. And this is an important realization for parents. I mean, supplying a younger child with food and clothing and protection and education and entertainment are just part of parenting. It's actually not the most important part. If a father and mother aren't teaching their child obedience and respect, they're not doing their job. A parent's primary purpose is not to win his kid's friendship or to make the kid happy, but to teach that child obedience and respect, how to honor authority. And don't mistake obedience as the ultimate goal. Everybody loves an obedient child, but sometimes a compliant child may obey and yet still not learn the bigger lesson. Kids need to be taught the concept of authority. Honor is a combination of obedience and respect. You see, it's possible for a child to obey a parent without respecting them. A parent can bribe them into obedience. Or a parent can threaten them into obedience without them ever receiving the attitude of respect. When Paul quotes Exodus 20 verse 12 in Ephesians 6, he uses a Greek term for the word honor, which means to prize. Kids need to be taught to prize their parents. Are we there for our kids? Do we love them and encourage them and help them in tough times? Do we discipline them promptly and effectively when warranted? Do we set a godly example for them? Do we live out what we believe? If we as parents act honorably, it will make it easier for our kids to honor us. When my oldest son, Zach, was just a tot, I asked him one day, I said, son, what do you like most about dad? He said, when you wrestle with me. I said, and son, what do you not like about dad? Or what do you like least about dad? He said, when you spank me. Well, I was feeling bold that day, so I decided to go a step further. I said, son, what do you like most about mom? Zach's eyes lit up. He said, when she cooks me breakfast. And then I really mustered some courage. Okay, son, what do you like least about your mom? Zach thought for several seconds, and and then he answered, Dad, everything mom does is good. (laughs) There's a son who prizes a parent. Hey, if we're brave enough to discipline our kids and teach them how to obey and show respect, and at the same time conduct ourselves in a way that causes our kids to want to prize us, I think it's a pretty safe bet then that they'll grow up prizing God's authority in their lives as well. Honor your father and your mother is not only the child's command, it's also the parent's goal. Children keep the fifth commandment by obeying and respecting their parents, whereas parents keep it by teaching and insisting on obedience and respect in their children. Well, let me sum up this morning with an interesting story. In 1997, the city government of Managua, Nicaragua, funded a project to name the city's streets and number the buildings. You see, for the previous 25 years, this city of one and a half million people had functioned without street names and addresses. Can you imagine the confusion? In 1972, a devastating earthquake turned the city into ruins. After the killer quake, streets were never renamed. 
the buildings were never renumbered until 1997. That meant for 25 years, there were no formal addresses, no directions, you know, that were concrete. All of the directions and navigation were based on landmarks and natural features, like go to the third street after the lake. I mean, getting around in the city was nearly impossible, especially for the out-of-towners. But this is what life is like without God's top ten. Without the Ten Commandments, there's no moral compass. There's no way to get your bearings. Lifestyle decisions end up a guessing game, just a shot in the dark. Without God's ten sayings, we're destined to suffer from trial and error. And trust me, that's not the way you want to live your life. Don't you desire to build your life on rock-solid wisdom? If so, embrace God's top ten as guidelines for your life. And then ask the Holy Spirit to help you keep them.